In today's episode, the first of a two-part series, we're finally branching outside of New York to cover Raymond Patriarca, one of the most feared and respected bosses in the history of the American Cosa Nostra. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore, and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a longtime history buff and mob aficionado. As I mentioned in the teaser, today we're covering off on the man who was the boss of the New England area for over 30 years, Raymond Patriarca. Patriarca, who based his operations in Providence, Rhode Island, was one of the most feared and respected bosses in the history of the American Cosa Nostra. He ruled over the New England area with an iron fist for more than 30 years as the namesake of what is still known even today as the Patriarca crime family. Now, before we get into the episode, I'd just like to remind you to please smash that subscribe button and turn on the bell to get notifications when I post a new episode. To all my followers, uh, whether you're new or whether you've been following the channel for a while, please feel free to leave a comment and tell me your thoughts on the episode below. I'm looking forward to some more spirited debates, and thus far, people haven't been shy about sharing their thoughts, so I'd encourage you all to keep it coming. Now, on to the show. By most accounts, Ray Patriarca was one of the most ruthless and effective bosses, be it inside or outside of New York, in the entire country. In fact, legend has it that he allegedly even once ordered a soldier to murder his own son. So when I say ruthless, I mean about as heartless as they come. Even still, his men respected him. He was viewed as a good and fair leader, and due to that, he was able to exert control not just in Rhode Island, but on the entirety of the New England area. He ruled his mafia domain uh, with an iron fist for over three decades. Now, before we dive in, I just want to quickly caveat the following. With most of my previous subjects, information uh, was relatively sparse. In the case of Patriarca, there is almost too much information to take in, and it was a little like drinking water from a fire hose. To put it in perspective, I have done Freedom of Information Act requests on previous subjects and was lucky to get back any information. In the case of Patriarca, I got back over 15,000 pages of documents, which to me was quite shocking and mind-blowing. Due to the fact that there is just so much source material, I've decided to break this biography into a two-part series that I feel will be one of the most comprehensive looks at Raymond Patriarca that is available. Uh, so without further ado, let's get started on part one of the Ray Patriarca biography, and we'll kick it off as we always do by exploring his early life. 
Raymond Lareda Salvatore Patriarca was a first-generation Italian-American born on St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1908. Uh, I'd like, just like to add, uh, that is one day before my birthday. <laughs> uh, he was born on Shrewberry Street in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is about 40 miles west of Boston, and he was the son of Italian immigrants. His father, Alitario Patriarca, was an Italian immigrant from the village of Arce Lazio, uh, which is a small municipality in the province of Frosinone in the region of Lazio, Italy. To put that in perspective, for those unfamiliar with the region, Lazio is close to halfway between Rome and Naples, which would make the Patriarchas Neapolitan in their ancestry. His mother was a woman named Vincenzo di Nubila, uh, who was also listed in records under the name Mary Jane, uh, and she was born in Massachusetts, making her of Italian-American descent also, but making her sort of a first-generation uh, American as opposed to one who had come over from the old country. An interesting thing that I found in Raymond's birth record uh, was that his official name is not listed as Raymond. It is actually Raimondo, uh, and it was Americanized to Raymond. Anyhow, at the age of four, Raymond moved with his family to 161 and a half Atwells Avenue in Providence, Rhode Island. Raymond's father was in the alcohol business as one record showed him working as a wine clerk at a hotel, while another source says he was a saloon keeper and or ran a local liquor store. Uh, there seems to be a bit of confusion on his occupation as Ray's family had actually two people boarding with them, one of whom was also listed as a saloon keeper. But either way, it's clear that Ray's dad dealt in the alcohol business in some way. Ray's mother stayed at home to take care of the growing family, which consisted of Raymond, uh, as well as three older sisters, Lizzie, Adelina, and Grace, as well as an older brother, Joseph, who would also go into the life. Young Raymond's early life was relatively uneventful and fairly common for young Italians of the time. He left school when he was eight years old, which is about third grade, to shine shoes and work as a bellhop uh, to help support his family. Unfortunately, he found that the pay was meager and as a result, he began drifting into a life of crime to make money. During the same time period, after the end of World War I, another significant event was unfolding, nationally speaking, and that, of course, was prohibition. From October of 1919 until its repeal in 1933, the Volstead Act, as it was known, made it illegal to manufacture and distribute or sell alcoholic beverages. This law, of course, blew up in the government's face in the sense that it was largely unpopular to a thirsty public and was incredibly difficult to effectively enforce. Additionally, because the demand for alcohol was still present, rather than being supported by legitimate companies, the demand was served essentially on the black market by bootleggers who recognized the immense monetary potential and set up illegal operations to capitalize. So it's no surprise that many Italian mobsters shifted their primary criminal activities to bootlegging, which increased their wealth exponentially, grew their list of contacts, and provided many with an Ivy League education in crime prior to the founding of the American Cosa Nostra in 1931. And of course, Ray Patriarca was no different. Born in 1908, he was coming into his own during the 1920s and early 1930s, which of course was right in the middle of Prohibition or towards, towards the end, as it was winding down. 
1925, when Raymond was just 17 years old, his father passed away after falling in a bathtub and hitting his head on a medicine cabinet. This event left young Raymond without a father figure to steer him in the right direction. Uh, by that time, all the Patriarcha kids were old enough to work, and like most immigrants, they all lived in the same Federal Hill house. Ray would later tell a congressional committee that he drifted a little when his father died. During his teenage years, Patriarcha began diving headfirst into illegal activities, and he was arrested and convicted of breaking prohibition laws in Connecticut while still in his teens. At this time, he'd become deeply involved in drunk rolling and bootlegging and was already beginning to hone his underworld reputation. But even then, he was already trying to hide his true occupation as he showed up in a 1930 U.S. census listed alongside his family, which stated that his occupation was as an automobile salesman. This was both a good front and a great way to acquire the vehicles he needed to smuggle alcohol. He was later said to be so ruthless that he arranged hijackings of liquor shipments that he was actually hired to protect. And of course, this sort of thing often led to bloodshed when discovered, so either he was really good at concealing discovery of his involvement in these hijackings, or his enemies were too scared to confront him. He was also indicted as an accessory to murder before Prohibition's end in 1933, uh, so he got started uh, killing people. Pretty, pretty early on in life. In addition to smuggling liquor, he was also involved in hijacking, armed robberies, assault, safe cracking, and auto theft. By this point, he was no stranger to taking pinches and would be arrested many times, though he'd typically find one way or another to wiggle out of it. As the 1930s went on, Patriarcha would become more deeply involved in the underworld and Italian organized crime in Rhode Island, gaining a reputation as a professional criminal. His arrests dating to 1928 included failing to stop for a policeman, breaking and entering, larceny, robbery, vacancy, violation of the Mann Act, conspiracy to violate the White Slavery Act, and masterminding a jail break-in in which a prison guard and a trustee were killed. During his lifetime, Patriarcha was arrested or indicted more than 30 times, convicted seven times, imprisoned four different times, and served a total of 11 years in prison, uh, with more than half of his prison time relating to murder conspiracy charges. What was clear is that from an early age, Ray Patriarcha possessed a rare combination of talent. He was incredibly shrewd, smart, and calculating, but he also wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He would later gain a reputation for being incredibly fair, but if you dared to cross him, he had no problem having you murdered. As a boss in that life, these are the most important qualities a man needed to maximize his effectiveness. He was once described by a Massachusetts state policeman as being just the toughest guy you ever saw. According to FBI memos, around the same time period, a number of competing gangs had sprung up in Rhode Island. They formed a similar pattern in that there was the tail end of the Irish mob and the beginning of the Italian underworld gang that was gaining ascendancy. The top man in the gambling rackets in Rhode Island, according to police officials in that state, was Cameron Dinky O'Connor. In the 1930s, one of the strong-arm boys who worked as an enforcer for O'Connor was Raymond L.S. Patriarcha. In 1931, Patriarcha was sentenced to one year and one day in federal prison at Atlanta for transportation of a female over a state line for the purposes of prostitution, which is, of course, where he got his violation of the Mann Act. 
Then in 1932, he was charged with committing an armed robbery down in Massachusetts, but the witnesses refused to ID him, and he was off the hook again. And as you get deeper into the 1930s, this is where Patriarcha's star in the American Cosa Nostra really began to shine, and people in high places began to really take notice of his earning capabilities and leadership potential. Before we talk about how Ray Patriarcha rose to power, allow me to give you a bit of history on what became known as the Patriarcha crime family. Before the start of Prohibition, the modern-day Patriarcha family actually began as two separate mafia families, one in Boston and the other in Providence. Now the history at this point is a little murky, but I've done my best to puzzle out what was a very complex situation involving several major geographical areas. During the turn of the century, many Sicilians immigrated to the Federal Hill area of Providence, Rhode Island, as well as the Boston, Massachusetts area. And of course, with them came their traditions, as well as an element of crime, which was referred to as the Black Hand, though that type of harassment would largely be phased out in the late 1910s and replaced by more traditional mafia groups. The Providence Mafia group was founded by Frank Butsy Morelli in 1917 after he'd moved from uh, Brooklyn during World War I to the New England area. Morelli's family established control over all bootlegging and illegal gambling operations in Providence, Maine, as well as Connecticut. Now, a little known fact about the Morellis is that it is actually rumored that the very famous 1920 case of Sacco and Vanzetti in which two men were executed for a Massachusetts robbery in which two victims were killed was actually committed by the Morelli gang uh, and they were picked up uh, later on it, it discussing and admitting uh, that Sacco and Vanzetti had taken the fall essentially for them. Now, the Boston family... Uh, which was the more significant of the two at the time, was founded in the 1910s by Gaspare Dicola. Dicola led the group until his murder in 1916, at which time another Gaspare, Gaspare Messina, took over as new boss with a powerful lieutenant named Joseph Lombardo. In 1924, Gaspare Messina decided to step down as Boston's mafia boss and, of all things, uh, work as a businessman in a grocery store on Prince Street in Boston's North End. It's really at this point when all hell breaks loose. Various gang factions of the Boston underworld would struggle to fill the power vacuum and fought for control over illegal gambling, bootlegging, as well as loan sharking rackets. During this struggle, a mobster named Filippo Philip Bucola imported from Palermo, Sicily, emerged as the key leader of the Boston family. And of course, as you get into the early 1930s, the Castellamorese War kicked off in New York, creating turmoil for the entire underworld. Now, one thing that wasn't really actually that clear to me was that allegedly in December of 1930 or early 1931, a meeting was held to elect the previously retired Messina as the leader of not just the mafia in Boston, but temporarily as the capo de tutacapi, boss of bosses, of the entire mafia with Joseph Lombardo as his underboss. Uh, so pretty kind of confusing situation. And obviously we know that this wouldn't be a permanent thing, uh, especially as that position was abolished. 
during the early 1930s, uh, the New England Italian Mafia was at war with other ethnic groups, including the Irish and Jewish gangs, to control all the territory within Boston. In December of 1931, in a bid to eliminate the very powerful Irish mob group called the Gustin Gang, Lombardo arranged for the murder of an Irishman named Frank Wallace, who was the head of the South Boston group. Uh, this was a fairly important murder as it helped the family gain more territory, rackets, power, and money, and took out a major competitor in the process. On the heels of this hit in 1932, the Morelli uh, family from Providence and the Messina family from Boston received permission from the commission to merge and formally become what is known today as the Patriarcha crime family, though it was not yet, of course, called that at the time. Now, it's important to know that as of this point in time, the primary power base of the family was in Boston and not Providence, though it would later shift. After the merger and consolidation of the two organizations in the early 1930s, at some point, there was a transition of power from Messina to Philip Bukala, uh, who became the boss. Bukala ran the family from East Boston and continued to operate on a war footing to defeat and eliminate any non-Italian competition. After the murder of infamous Jewish mob boss and gambling czar Charles King Solomon in 1933, Bukala essentially became the most powerful mobster in New England, though Boston would maintain a heavy, heavy Irish contingent for many years to come. According to FBI memos, some sources who have been acquainted with the evolution of gangsterism in the New England area attribute Patriarcha's success in welding the Italian element in Rhode Island with the Italian underworld element in Massachusetts to the influence of Philip Bukala. Now back to Patriarcha. In the late 1920s, and after the passing of his father, it's said that Patriarcha served an apprenticeship of sorts within the Providence family, continuing his involvement in bootlegging, but also getting into prostitution and hijacking. Right around this time, it's difficult to discern, uh, he would become a hitman for the mob and a key lieutenant for Bukala. According to the New England Historical Society, Patriarcha was officially made in 1929. He would begin to forge alliances with the New York families, including the Profaci and Luciano crime family, who were said to view him as their can-do guy in New England. He would later say, quite morbidly, I might add, that the happiest days of my life uh, were when I was on the street clipping. And no, he wasn't talking about cutting hair. During the 1930s, Patriarcha's reputation and public notoriety would grow so much in the underworld that the Providence Board of Public Safety had named him Public Enemy Number 1 and ordered the police to arrest him on site. In 1938, 29-year-old Patriarcha participated in and was arrested for several robberies. One of those robberies was of a Brookline, Massachusetts jewelry store called Wallbank Jewelry Company, allegedly where he stole $12,000 worth of gold and gems along with an employee's car. Five nights later, Patriarcha and his accomplices were attempting to pull off another heist at the United Optical Plant in Webster, Massachusetts, when a barking dog alerted police. The authorities found Patriarcha hiding under a bench, arrested him, and charged him with carrying a gun without a permit, possession of burglar's tools, and armed robbery. In yet another robbery case, he would be arrested and would stand trial after holding up a Boston jewelry store, Daniel Seidler and Sons, on Washington Street, in which he stole diamonds valued at $20,000. 
Unfortunately for Patriarca and his partner, they would be arrested again at the racetrack at Paul Tuckett, Rhode Island, and identified by the owner of the store they'd robbed via pictures in a rogues gallery. The owner stated that he recognized one of the men due to the fact that they'd removed their hood during the robbery. Now, for the time, the robberies that they'd pulled off turned out to be massive, massive scores that netted the robber what equates to $252,000 in the first case and $420,000 in the second robbery, uh, which is astro astronomical for two, two jobs. Uh, but it's unlikely that Patriarca got to enjoy much of that money as he was sentenced to three to five years in prison for the three crimes. However... Patriarcha had an ace up his sleeve in the form of executive counselor Daniel H. Coakley, a close associate of Massachusetts Governor Charles F. Hurley. It was later alleged that Patriarcha's brother Joseph had surreptitiously met with Coakley and paid him off. In a stunning, stunning twist of events, young Patriarcha was officially pardoned by Governor Hurley in 1938 after serving only 84 days in prison. So... <laughs> If you're doing the math, right? Um, you know, long criminal record, robs over $600,000 in today's money worth of jewels and in gems, 84 days in prison. So I, I can imagine uh, that the people there uh, were, were, were pretty, pretty upset. There were reports that Patriarcha had leveraged his political connections to secure a release, and afterwards an inquiry was demanded by outraged Massachusetts state legislators as part of a statewide protest. Representative Roland E. Sawyer even went so far as to call the release a disgrace. He would go on to say the pardon of Raymond Patriarcha is the last and boldest of a long chain of bold and defiant acts, and it seems to be the last straw that breaks the camel's back. That inquiry revealed that Executive Counselor Daniel H. Coakley, a close associate of Governor Hurley, had drawn up a parole petition based on the appeals of three priests. Now, now here's where it gets good. One priest had been tricked into signing the letter as a favor to a donor under the understanding that Patriarcha had just committed minor juvenile delinquencies. Another priest who didn't know Patriarcha at all had never been consulted nor authorized his signature. And of course, the third and most infamous priest, a Father Fagan, uh, did not exist except in the mind of Coakley, who had in actuality completely fabricated him. Uh, there was uh, really no person named Father Fagan. He was not a real person. Just let that sink in. He's a fugazi. <laughs> not real. Uh, in his petition for pardon, Coakley stated that Patriarcha was a virtuous young man eager to be released from prison so that he might go home to his mother. Isn't that just wholesome? Uh, as a result of the inquiry, Coakley was impeached and dismissed in disgrace from the governor's office, and his career really uh, was never the same. Uh, though the scandal greatly impacted Coakley's political career, it had the opposite effect for Patriarcha. The episode had enhanced Patriarcha's reputation in the underworld, and it demonstrated his immense power, craftiness, and just how much political clout he had even at that relatively early point in his career. According to FBI reports, some well-informed police in the Boston area feel that it was Bukala who, as a very suave, well-spoken individual, made contacts with influential politicians and, in fact, induced 
redacted to procure the crooked parole for Patriarcha in 1938. After being released from prison in 1938, Patriarcha returned to Providence. In 1939, at age 31, Patriarcha married Helen G. Mandela. The couple would go on to have one son, Raymond Patriarcha Jr., in 1945, uh, and that son, of course, would follow his father into the mob lifestyle. Uh, but there is evidence that Patriarcha didn't just marry Helen because of love, though I'm sure they loved each other, but there may have been some other forces at work. FBI memos stated the following. Another factor which tended to establish Patriarcha as a big man in the rackets was the patronage of the late Frank Iacconi. Iacconi was the boss of the Italian underworld element in Worcester, Massachusetts. Patriarcha himself, it will be recalled, was a native of Worcester, married a Mandela girl from Worcester, and continued to maintain his contacts in the underworld element there. As a result of such friendships with the acknowledged leaders, Patriarcha emerged as the undisputed boss in the underworld of southern New England. And yet another interesting find came from U.S. Census records in 1940, where Patriarcha was still listed as living at his mother's residence, and his occupation had changed from automobile salesman in 1930 to handyman and mother's estate which I'll assume means looking at his looking after his mother's mother's affairs but uh <laughs> definitely a different different job description kind of makes him seem like he doesn't really do do any do anything uh but we know that that's not true in reality during the 1940s patriarcha continued to rise through the cosa nostra ranks increasing his influence and power within the new england underworld his ascension certainly included murder and he also had a knack for political corruption that would serve him well in his future as mob boss. However, Patriarcha would be briefly tied up in a bit of legal trouble in the 1940s. First, Patriarcha served a two-and-a-half to three-year sentence in Massachusetts State Prison on a charge of robbery and assault with intent to rob. For that offense, he was paroled on May 11, 1944. Shortly after his release from Massachusetts State Prison in 1944, he was arrested by the Cranston, Rhode Island Police Department on a charge of being an accessory before the fact to two murders. The background of that prosecution is as follows. On Easter Sunday, 1930, there was a desperate attempt by two unidentified individuals to rescue prisoners from the state prison at Howard, Rhode Island. During the course of the abortive foray, a prison guard and a prison trustee were killed. The murders remained unsolved for a number of years up until 1944 when a former Rhode Island redacted came forward and named Patriarcha as one of the two desperados involved in the attempted breakout. Patriarcha disclaimed any knowledge of the affair and pleaded the statute of limitations. The Supreme Court of Rhode Island upheld Patriarcha's contention and he was released. So as would be the case time and time again for Patriarcha, crisis averted. As the decade went on, Patriarcha worked to broaden the family's connections in order to solidify their rule over much of New England and Rhode Island. He continued to acquire power, wealth, political influence, and prestige, and had continued to gain the notice of his boss, Philip Bucola. It was during this time period where Patriarcha essentially became Bucola's heir apparent, the driving force in the family, and a serious, serious man to be reckoned with.
FBI memos recanting the history at the time stated, when Patriarca was released from the Massachusetts State Prison in 1944, he had achieved sufficient notoriety as a criminal to have considerable influence in underworld circles. The so-called boss of the underworld's element at the time in Rhode Island was Frank Morelli, also known as Butsy Morelli, who dominated the booking and lottery field. Patriarca commenced to surround himself with reliable persons and soon outstripped Morelli in the quest for leadership. Morelli had a weakness for liquor and gambling, started to lose influence, and as of today, Morelli is a broken-down alcoholic who has no authority in the underworld. In February of 1946, police officials in Rhode Island stated that they'd been informed that Patriarca had called a meeting at the Narragansett Hotel of about 75 to 100 bookmakers in Rhode Island for the purpose of informing them that he and Johnny Candelmo had a protection service, uh, which they were going to make available to all bookies in Rhode Island. How convenient. Uh, and this essentially is how Patriarca and Condelmo cut themselves in on all the bookmaking business in Rhode Island. Now, when some bookies refused, stupidly, uh, the protection service, they were summarily murdered. And the FBI described it as very cause and effect, very causal. And as the clock turned to the 1950s, it was said to be nearly impossible to be a major figure in crime in New England and not have to deal with Patriarca. If you defied him, you risked life and limb, as he had no qualms about ordering murders of unwilling partners. Maybe his only rival at the time was an Irish mobster named Carlton O'Brien. O'Brien was a former bootlegger who went into gambling and had taken control of the local racing wire service. But in 1952, Patriarca's hitman would shoot O'Brien to death, which would allow Patriarca to gobble up even more rackets and continue his ascension to the throne. Okay, so that is it for part one of the Ray Patriarca biography. Uh, we will be releasing part two uh, in the very near future. Uh, it is already recorded, undergoing editing uh, at the moment. Uh, just a reminder, uh, if you like this channel and if you like my content, don't forget to mash that subscribe button. Uh, and of course, leave lots of comments below. I love to hear from you. Uh, and if you want to read uh, some of the details of what I'm presenting and look at the sources, uh, again, I'm going to host all of the FBI Freedom of Information Act files uh, that I've uh, was sent on my website. Uh, and again, that is www.membersonlypodcast.com. Uh, and again, like I said, part two will be out shortly, and I promise it is going to be just as amazing as part one uh, in terms of the level of detail and the things that we were able to dig up. Uh, so again, thank you for watching, and until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.